But I don't, I really don't have any regrets. I really don't. I've, I've lived exactly how I've wanted to. I've tried my hardest every single time. I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won. Or, but I really gave it my all. So that for me is enough. Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. Episode 242, coming to you, I was about to say, on the eve of Indian Wells this October, but it's already started. Uh, yeah, has is this qualifying? No, it's already started. Sloan is playing Heather Watson currently, Lawanda, queen of tennis Twitter, and roaming tennis venues is sitting behind Heather's mother mm-hmm. while the match is going on right now. I saw that. So she said she had to tamp down her cheering for Sloan just to be safe. They're currently once at all in what appears to be a match of incredibly poor quality. Oh. Those That's, that's oh. the report from Tennis Twitter <laughs> you, right you now. You know, that could change while we're recording. Who knows? Sloan just took the second set 7-5 and they're in the third. Before we get into... Oh, Indian Wells, or any of the other things on the agenda. Let's start with a few cute results. Cute results. Yeah. From last week. There was a, a series of Chicago events, three events in the south side of Chicago this year that were brought to you by Kamau Murray, bringing tennis back to Chicago after a long time and to a part of the city that doesn't typically see professional tennis. Garbinia Muguruza had... Uh, a great week and a fairly low work required week. Spoken more clearly and to the point, you are saying that she got two walkovers on the way to her title and, uh, you know, didn't face a top, what, 50 player until the final? Mm. Pretty good week for her. Beating Ons Jabur in the final in three sets, coming back from a set and a breakdown. Both women on the cusp of qualifying for Guadalajara. We now know that the road leads somewhere. It's the road to Guadalajara in Mexico. The year-end WTA tournament has been relocated to Mexico this year. Yes, there's been a lot of chatter about why it's in Guadalajara, why not somewhere else. Ash Barty's coach, Craig Tizer, is particularly annoyed by it. But here we are. We have a WTA Finals. We didn't have one last year. This is certainly better than nothing. And it's, again, great to bring tennis to a place that, although they have some events, is not your your typical tennis superpower country. Okay. I mean, that argument is neither here nor there for me. Okay. I mean, this was just, we need this event to happen somewhere. Right. But we have tennis in Guadalajara previously. We have tennis in Mexico every year. It's not that strange. But how often do they get to host an event this big okay i'm just saying i'm getting to my point which is you kind of brushed over tizer's comments no we'll get there what he said was quote i mean it's not the greatest advertisement for the best girls in the world to be playing something they've never done before in conditions they've never played in a country they don't play and at altitude i just feel it's ridiculous I mean... Craig has had a lot to say recently. This was one of those things. I felt like the comments were so uncalled for. To me, it's like, okay, if Ash doesn't want to play, she doesn't have to play. 
just let her go home. Why shouldn't the, the quote just be, Ash is tired and has to go home and quarantine for another two weeks, and she's probably not going to play this event. It's, what, like, it's what, really that simple. Okay, you play in Altitude Madrid. Um, there has been a women's 250 event in this particular city in 2019 and 2021. It's not true that tennis doesn't happen here. Acapulco uh, happens. Venus right. has won it many times. Right, but in this city in particular, at mm. altitude, right? Like, there is an event. Your player doesn't play that event, but it exists. Right, but when you make such broad sweeping comments like this, it, it leaves great room for interpretation. You know, you have folks who read these comments as being xenophobic. Yeah, I mean, it's not really my place to say whether they are or not. I, I mean, I didn't really get that from it. I just felt that they were sort of ignorant comments and uh, unnecessarily dismissive of the WTA in trying desperately to get this event situated somewhere. You know, The entire I, fall Asian Swing was canceled last year. It's not happening again this year. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Folks are scrambling to keep tennis on the calendar um i i just thought this was a big miss for me yeah now recently more recently craig was also complaining about ash having to quarantine for another two weeks when she returned to australia and i get it that's actually an argument that i understand more because she is fully vaccinated she had she requested to quarantine at home and it was denied so she's stuck in a two-week hotel quarantine and he was annoyed about that. Totally get it. I feel like that's a much better argument. I don't like the argument that I've heard that, oh, she's taken 70 COVID tests this year. Well, as we know, the only COVID test that actually matters is your most recent one. And it that, doesn't matter. And that might not even matter. <laughs> right. It doesn't matter how many you've taken. Although, annoying, this is the price you pay for having to travel the world for your occupation. So this tournament is happening in Guadalajara. Ons Jabur lost that final but she is still the tour leader in wins on the wta this season what a year she's had 44 wins uh prior to this year she had never won a tournament she she had so many firsts this year her best performances at slams i think she's had uh five top 10 wins this year and it puts her at number nine in the race as you said and with Barty most likely not playing and Naomi Osaka up in the air, I would say, she could very well get in. And a lot will depend on these next few weeks. Indian Wells' performance is going to be huge. Because those people from like 8 to, you know, well, <laughs> people from 8 in the race all the way down through the high teens are very, very close in points. Mm-hmm. Emma Raducanu has packed her fall schedule, presumably with the hopes of qualifying. She's currently number 15. If we operate under the assumption that Osaka and Barty won't be there, you just need to get to number 10 as of right now. And that's Elisa Mertens at 2,447 points. And Raducanu is 150 points behind her. I think by my quick math, 155 behind her. And the way this qualification works is that the the four Grand Slams are automatically counted. The WTA Masters, well, the WTA 1000 tournaments are automatically counted. 
and it takes a total of 16 tournaments into account. Mm. We've seen on the WTA Tour this year and for a long while now that anybody can win any of these big tournaments. So really, you (laughs) tack on, what, a thousand points from this tournament, the tournament being Indian Wells, you can go as far down as, what, like number 35 or number 30 in that vicinity to find somebody who could win this tournament and get themselves into serious consideration to Mm. make Guadalajara. And in that stretch between 30 and 35, you have players like Teichman, you have... Camila Georgi, Victoria Azarenka, Vondrosova is there, Bianca Andrescu is at 36. There's a lot of intrigue still in the WTA season. Yeah, now that would be a big, big stretch, but there is a a whole host of players who still have an outside chance of qualifying for the finals. A big, big stretch what? That these people could qualify? Well, but you also have to depend on the people above them to not perform at all okay you know <laughs> i'm just saying you could not everybody have not everybody can lose in the first round two big wins and you're in the the finals mm-hmm. out of nowhere presumably four players have already qualified barty in the pole position at number one sabalenka number two krejcikova number three and plishkova number four so Mogarutha won chicago also in chicago kim Kleisters played her first match of 2021 and she is still yet to win a match in her comeback. Her comeback that has had quite a few stops and starts, mostly due to COVID, some due to injury. She did take Shea way to three sets. Obviously not the type of player you would want to play if there are any questions at all about your fitness. And clearly, you know, there has been a lot of mean-spiritedness about Kim's comeback, especially recently. It's no mystery, and she knows this. Fitness is going to be something she has to work on. And this is not because of the way she looks. It's because she's 37 years old. She's had three children. She's been away from the game for a long time. She's been dealing with injuries while trying to get fit for this comeback. And the comeback has been interrupted several times now. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of very good reasons why she's not performing to the level that I'm sure she had hoped. I get the impression that Kim, correct me if I'm wrong or if I'm speaking out of pocket, but Kim is the type of player who would rely on her natural gifts to get her through a couple matches and have those matches be the kind of training and, and ramping up of fitness rather than, you know, going all out, killing themselves in the gym. And who knows, but... We know from experience now that with older players, they can expect to sort of get their fitness during match play and have that be enough, right? We we see it with Serena, who is battling injuries constantly, and playing a few matches here or there is, is just not enough to get her fit enough to sustain. So, And it's nobody's fault. It's just that playing at this high level at their age is really really difficult okay but also with the pandemic it threw a lot of wrenches into those plans oh yeah like if you were hoping to you know win a couple matches here or there and build fitness that way it just wasn't there for her relying on wild cards to these bigger tournaments Mm. because you're you're playing good players in your first match. What was it? Yeah. Dubai last year she played Muguruza in her first match. <laughs> right. She gets she's she played in um, Chicago. Alexandrova at a, it was at a major, right? At the US Open, uh, yeah. I believe, yeah. 
Um, and like she can hang with these players. The sound of the ball off her racket is still incredible. Mm-hmm. But you can see from watching the matches that physically how we're used to seeing Kim Kleisters move on a court from back in the day and also how we expect top flight players to move on a tennis court today. Kim's not, she's not there yet. Mm-hmm. She's got a wild card into Indian Wells, so we'll see how that pans out in the next few days. Yeah, she'll be playing Katerina Siniakova in the first round. The bottom line is the fat shaming needs to stop. Yeah, I just, I don't really get it. I don't know what Kim did to y'all to make you so nasty to her. The fat, like, because saying that your fave has been treated badly and then treating her the same way, that's not it. Right, what are you, that, what are like, you that referencing doesn't, specifically? Was saying that oh, if Serena came out here like that, she would be uh, absolutely torn apart, and that is true. But doing it to Kim doesn't right the wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, it's two wrongs. <laughs> it's also wrong. In San Diego, a new tournament as well. We got all these American tournaments popping up back on the tennis calendar. Mm-hmm. But some uh, some familiar places in the old school kind of pre-U.S. Open swing. Mm-hmm. And now they're occurring after the U.S. Open. Andy Murray said that it's one of, if not the best or his most favorite city he's ever played in or visited. San which, Diego? Well, I've never been to San Diego, no. but I find that hard to believe. Uh, I mean, I would love to go to San Diego. I heard it's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, how? Who, who are you to say that Andy's wrong? I am me, and I'm not saying he's wrong. <laughs> I'm just saying it caught me off just guard. Because he's bit. been to like he's almost been every major city in the world. Everywhere. Cities with incredible history, architecture, where Americans don't live. Like. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> point. Good point. Maybe he likes the Navy ships in the harbor. I don't, I don't know. Casper uh, Rude is now the ATP Tour title leader in 2021 after his. A uh, quick and decisive run through San Diego. It only took four matches, mm-hmm. beating Annie Murray, uh, Karate Kid, Sonego, Dimitrov, and Cam Nori in the final. Mm-hmm. Wasn't he the one who was referred to as a clay rat? Yes. By Nick Kyrgios at yeah. one point? Um, so he ratted through the clay season, uh, winning four titles, and now he's leveling up on hard courts. And... It doesn't take a genius, and by that I mean me saying this doesn't mean I deserve plaudits if it were to come to fruition. It doesn't take a genius to make the leap that Rude is a big favorite in Indian Wells. With that gritty surface, a surface that clay court players tend to do better on, uh, he's absolutely one to watch out for. Yeah, and not only is it a gritty and slow surface... It's a high bouncing surface mm-hmm. as well. I I don't want to create any stand wars here, but Nick and Casper now have an equal number of career titles at six. The difference is that Casper won five of them this year. Mm-hmm. Murray beat Dennis Kudla in the first round in San Diego, and then ran into Casper Root. Competitive match, as with a lot of Andy Murray matches in this comeback that he's been making, he plays. All these guys ranked so much higher than him. Super tough in the first set. And then there is this letdown. 
He lost that 7-5 first set to Kaspar Ruud and then went down a break immediately in the second set. And then it was an uphill battle. Yeah, uh, I, that one was a very strange match, too, because commentators early in the second set were befuddled. They were like, what is like, is Andy throwing in the towel right now? Because he was well, mentally were, not there. They were speculating, oh, he must be injured or something mm-hmm. must be wrong with him physically because this is not this is not on. This is not him. It, well, it was a sort of uncharacteristic lapse in concentration, it seemed, because he did fight really for the rest of that set. Mm hmm. For me, watching an Andy Murray match and seeing that happen, his entire career has been built off of being a dog with a bone and being willing and able to go whatever distance in a match and do whatever he needs to do on a tennis court <laughs> to win a match. Yeah. And so the the cumulative effect of that, along with the years of injury and now coming back, not at his physical best, I can see how that can feel defeating right, right after you know taking Kasper Ruud four-time titleist that deep in a first set and have this first set dogfight with a top player and losing it again I can see how you yeah. can become dispirited oh yeah and a similar thing like you mentioned happened in the previous week in Moselle he played Orkoc really close in the first set losing in a tie break lost the match 7-6-6-3 but he had you know a quality win against Umbera he beat Pospisil decisively in his second match. And so he is getting good results, but he was always a player who was criticized for not being aggressive enough, right? Mm-hmm. Just, And it's not like you're going to change everything about your game in your dotage just because your health is in question. In Bulgaria, Yannick Sinner defended his title from a year ago, beating Gael Mofis in the final. Gael's... Finals record takes another tumble. (laughs) (laughs) Let's not focus on the record in finals. Let's talk about the consistency of making finals 16 years Mm -hmm. in a row. Yes, very impressive. It's the second longest active streak behind Rafa Nadal. Gael has made finals... been different in that he has won a title in all of those Uh, Yes, but we're just talking about final appearances here. Mm -hmm. Gael Mofiz has made a final... Every year since 2005. And his first final was that year in Sopot, Poland, which he won. And then, you know, he did go on a bit of a, you know, a long stretch of winning and, one here and there. And, and losing Oje Aliasimish. What? And Oje Aliasimesk streak. Not, not quite. Okay. That, I feel like that was an unnecessary dig on my part. It was. We'll see if it makes it through editing. It was it was a dig. It was really insulting to both guys mm. because Gael did win his first final. And making finals are hard to do. It's still an achievement. And and the longevity is something that's really impressive. Yes. Also, if you recall, Gael was not so long ago in tears in press conferences at a complete loss as to why he can't even win a match. Mm-hmm. And he's managed to turn his season around. And uh, lest we forget, Yannick Sinner has just won his fourth career title at his very young age, his third this year. Let's talk briefly about the Indian Wells tournament. This will not be a draw analysis situation (laughs) at all. Despite how it spreads into a massive draw over, you know, 10 days or whatever. I mean, the the number 31 seed has two buys before they play. I mean, that's what it feels like at this tournament. (laughs) It just feels unnecessarily large and spread out. 
to me. Right. Uh, this tournament has not happened in two and a half years. In 30 months, a lot in tennis and in the world has changed in those 30 months. Larry Ellison took a golf date with Donald Trump within those 30 months. The failure to launch of Indian Wells 2020 was the precipitating moment for tennis being stopped around the world. It was. It, you know, everybody probably has a story about their workplace shutting down. And there was that one day where they either sent everyone home or said, don't come in. Indian Wells cancellation was that for tennis. And like uh, me being at work, for example, a lot of folks were already there to cover the tournament, to play, to work at the tournament before the announcement of the cancellation happened. Mm -hmm. There are players who are highly ranked, highly thought of, players who've won big tournaments in the last two and a half years that have never played Indian Wells before. Right, right. So the the conditions are going to be interesting for them. It's it's kind of unique um, among the U.S. calendar. The I mean, it is tennis paradise. Haven't you heard? <laughs> I feel like they are being told to use that, right? They have to be. No, it's branding. been a thing for a long time. Okay. It's not new. Right. But the players using tennis paradise in their social media posts, that's got to be like a... I mean, I don't know what you want, what you're getting at, but... I think they're being highly encouraged. Sure, but they believe it. You yes. know Indian Wells yes. is one of the most popular player tournaments on the calendar, oh, yeah. bar none. I'm sure it's a great player and fan experience. I have never been. The defending champion? Bianca Andreescu mm-hmm. won this in 2019. It set off an incredible year for her. And she comes into this tournament in a very different place, right? She's 16 and 12 on the year. Her ranking has taken a bit of a tumble. And if she doesn't defend a bunch of points here, it will take another big tumble. She's not really in contention for the WTA finals this year. And it's, you know, coming back from... Not yet. What? I mean, she could win this tournament. (laughs) It's possible. I I think it's possible. If we're wrong, someone will correct us. But it may be theoretically possible. I just explained to you on the show that she was ranked number 36 in the race. Okay. And that if one were to win Indian Wells from that position... They would be within striking distance. Okay, fine, fine, fine. But Do you a lot of, see how little he listens but to But a lot of other things have to happen as well. Do you know what I mean? Okay, I, I hear and you. And again, not every player can lose early. I hear you. Okay. I'm just saying it's not as improbable as you make it out to My see. My point is that Bianca is coming into this tournament in a really different place than she was two and a half years ago. However, she is the kind of player who can trap lightning in a bottle. As we've seen before, she reached the Miami final seemingly out of nowhere. The rest of the year hasn't been that amazing. But people were even talking at the U.S. Open saying, oh, I think Bianca, she's really going to do it again. Like, okay, she didn't. But she put together some pretty good performances. Right. The sheen of Bianca being able to show up and do whatever, whenever, that has diminished Mm -hmm. a Mm -hmm. bit, a bit. But thinking that she could have done that at the U.S. Open was not that far-fetched because she's done it numerous times before in her short career. You said she's, what, like 16 and 12 on the year? It's not a great record when you consider one of those was like a a streak of, what, five or six wins in a row to make the final in Miami? Right, right. It is what it is. She's there. The men's defending champion is Dominic Team, who will not be there. So... Team, Novak, Rafa, Roger, all out. There are no 
former champions in the men's draw. And it, it doesn't exactly leave it wide open, but there's definitely, you know, will Daniel play well on the slower hardcore conditions? Is Casper Ruud primed to, to excel on this type of surface? He's just ramped up his hardcore bona fides. See, I think it's absolutely wide open. It's one of the most wide open tournaments on the men's side that I can recall. Mm-hmm. Well, because the no big Djokovic guys are gone. specifically. And this tweet from Chris Otto at the Fanchild that he sent out today, the top eight ATP seeds and their records at Indian Wells. Number one seed Medvedev, three and three. Two Sitsipas, one and two. That guy at number three, he's five and four. Rublev 1 and 2, Berrettini 0 and 2, Kaspar Ruud making his debut in Indian Wells as a number 6 seed, Felix number 7, 3 and 2, and Urkacz 4 and 1. Mm-hmm. That, that's not a lot of experience <laughs> and winning in the past from right. these guys. Right. Yeah, I think the like the weird place on the calendar, the fact that they've never held this tournament in the fall, the lack of experience can make this... Uh, a very unpredictable tournament on the men's side. But then then again, we could also get Medvedev winning on hardcourt again. Yeah, I think you know? if Medvedev won this tournament, it would be a big feather in his cap. Yeah, yeah. On the women's side, we've got three of the top eight out. And it's less of an impact just because the women's side is really different in that so many people can and have won big tournaments. But... Barty, Sabalenka, Kennan are out. Kennan is still number eight. Naomi Osaka is out. The odds maker's favorites, now get this, is Emma Raducanu, followed by Ika Sviantek. I'm like, what? That is... Pardon? Complete hogwash. <laughs> I don't, know, not to like, say I don't that, know how they make the... Not to say that Raducanu <laughs> cannot win, but this is just absurd. But the... The favorite? Crazy. And then the Crazy Iga stuff. as number two, that's... No, that makes perfect sense to me. Really? Yes. I mean, more than Pliskova... Yes. Uh, Slow, gritty. We just talked won. about it. Slow, gritty, hardcore. She has the clay game. Her game should translate well to this service. I get that. And Iga is somebody who's been hyped for a while now, justifiably, based on her 2020 French Open win, right? It hasn't always translated this year, mm-hmm. but I, I get that. We've okay. seen more of Ika. Sloane Stevens has just won a 6-1 third set over Heather Watson. All right. And that will end our Indian Wells segment. <laughs> Since we've been gone, there's been some movement from the ATP regarding the Germans case. Yes. So we mentioned a few weeks ago that the ATP had commissioned this independent safeguarding review. And the working group has come back with a report, but at the same time, the ATP announced that they have already started an investigation into the allegations against Alex Zverev that occurred at Shanghai in 2019. Now, Labor Cup and some other events are a conspicuous absence from this announcement, but the, the league has confirmed that they're investigating the allegations of intimate partner violence against Alex Zverev, which is a a huge thing, right? We've been talking about it for over a year and a half now, 
ever since Racket Magazine published the first story from Olya Sharipova, written by Ben Rothenberg. And now we either assume that this is going to be a good faith investigation or we take it with a grain of salt. Or I don't know. I mean, what to this say. Is, is complicated, right? Like, we have been asking for an investigation. That's it. That's what we want. And going forward, a policy about how the ATP will deal with this sort of accusation going forward. Because it's important for both the survivors and the alleged abusers that there be a process in place. So we know how to handle these things if they happen again. And And, they will happen again. And the credibility of the tour. Right. The credibility of tennis governing bodies. This may not end up being a situation where the outcome of this investigation is satisfactory to folks, depending on what you believe. As Mary Carrillo said, and we'll get into it later on, we believe Olya. So as to whether it will be satisfactory to us, that's to be seen. But at the very least, this is now something that's on the books that should change the way the ATP operates business going forward. Mm -hmm. Now, there are some questions, right? My first question is, great, why did it take so long? Why did it happen after he headlined the Labor Cup? Why is Labor Cup not mentioned in this press release? And there seems to be some confusion about what Labor Cup is and who owns it and who operates it. Labor Cup is an ATP event. It's owned by Teammate and Tennis Australia, but it is very much an ATP event. So I want to stop hearing that argument. And that was an important notch in its belt, an important feather in its cap toward getting credibility for this tournament, right? (laughs) Yes. Because the first iteration of this event, it was like, well, this is just a glorified exhibition. And they're like, well, you know what? It's actually not an ATP event. <laughs> like, give us time. We're going to And get we're going to retroactively count matches. And so this is legit. Even though it's invitation only, it's not based on your ranking that gets you qualified to play this tournament. It's whoever wants to get invited, whoever has a connection. Yes, but let's be clear. This was not initially launched as an ATP event. However... In 2019, you can Google this. Reuters has a very convenient story uh, at the top of the Google search page for you. It was announced that Labor Cup is now an ATB event after the successful first two editions. The 2019 and the 2021 uh, iterations of Labor Cup have been under the jurisdiction of the ATB, Mm -hmm. which means that they can access all of the ATP services that are available for typical tournaments. That includes their social media, marketing, umpires, a physio, and much more. Right, but this is such a clear-cut example of conflicts of interest in tennis. About how mm-hmm. things are so often muddled and muddied to the point where you can't pinpoint one specific person to hold accountable. Roger Federer's management company is part owner. Right. Tennis Australia. Tennis Australia is part owner. Like Tennis Australia, Mary Carrillo told us on the Behind the Racket podcast with Mike Cation and Noah Rubin that she said something about Nick Kyrgios that she thought was fairly innocuous. 
and truthful that even Nick would agree with, but Tennis Australia took issue with it at the 2019 Labor Cup. Like, that's great. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. I mean, we know that Tennis Australia and Craig Tiley uh, keep their PR and branding very, very tight, right? Roger Federer has a vested interest in this event. He is the richest and one of the most famous stars in the sports history. Tony Godsick, the ATP in general, Rod Laver, you know, who's lent his name to it. So it begs the question, by omitting Labor Cup as a specific site for investigation and only listing Shanghai, is the ATP worried about pissing off Craig Tiley, Tennis Australia? pissing off Roger Federer, pissing off Rod Laver. Why the secrecy around this? Right, or does it feel that Labor Cup is not its jurisdiction? And I don't know. I like I, I We really don't know, right? This is all conjecture at this point. We don't know, but yet it is an ATP event. So yes. like we're going to talk about it like it's an ATP event. Period. Mm-hmm. There was a story in the New York Times shortly after this press release came out that clarified a bit about what Zverev was talking about with regard to the injunction. (laughs) So, I mean, we knew he was full of shit, right? But the New York Times story spelled out what exactly that meant. A court in Germany agreed to institute an injunction because they felt the evidence in the Slate story was, quote, not sufficient under German law to justify the impact on Zverev. The article needs to have enough balance so it doesn't leave the impression that he is guilty. Now, this is under German law. Bottom line here is he presented this in press as irrefutable evidence that he is being victimized, that it's all a lie and that he's been vindicated and he's been proven to be innocent. Well, (laughs) he actually said that the courts, these mysterious courts, decided that his story was the correct one. That's not what an injunction means, right? This means that they felt the story was not balanced enough to leave the impression that Zverev was not guilty. And multiple times, Slate has issued statements saying, essentially, fuck that guy. Fuck that noise. We stand by our reporting. We have vetted our sources. We have fact-checked. We are not scared by this. We are not taking this article down. Period. Now, Slate operates in a country that has really strong laws that protect the press from being sued for defamation and libel. It may be different in Germany. Obviously, I don't really know their press laws very well. But an injunction doesn't mean that the court has ruled on the veracity of the story. It simply does not, right? Nor does it mean that if it does eventually that that has jurisdiction in the United States. Right. Now, about the investigation... I mean, of course, we have some questions going forward. Obviously, we have to wait and see what the result is. I'm curious, uh, were the results of this working group announced after Labor Cup on purpose? Was it just by chance that the the group was convened at a certain time and it took that long to, to come to a result? Uh, because we know, based on what the ATP said, that the investigation is actually already underway. What does cooperation look like for Zverev? Because he said that he's happy to cooperate, that this is what he's wanted the whole time, is an investigation and a chance to share his side of the story. What does cooperation look like 
I'm sure he thinks he's cooperated with the press in talking about this issue, mm-hmm. but that's clearly not been the case. So <laughs> does he need a dictionary definition or distinction between cooperation and obstruction? And another question is, will Olia participate? And, and in what capacity and how much? What happens if conclusive ev- evidence is found or not found? You know, let's say they find that this is a, on a balance of probabilities that it probably happened. What happens then? Is there a punishment? Like, we don't know if there's a disciplinary process in place because we have not encountered this yet. We also don't know what threshold of proof they're trying to meet. Right. Is it reasonable what doubt? What is their criteria? Is it a balance of probabilities? This is not a court of law, right? You don't have to prove things beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, we are in uncharted territory here. In related news, while the Labor Cup was going on, we told you in our last episode that we were not going to be covering that tournament. It would not have even come up on this episode had it not been for this announcement from the ATP. And also news from Mary Carrillo that she that she stood down from covering that tournament. She told us on the Behind the Racket podcast that in 2019 in Geneva, she had been the MC at the gala. She called matches. Presumably she was going to do the same again in Boston this year. And when she pressed Labor Cup officials as to, you know, what's the plan with the coverage for this? I've got to mention this in some way. We can't just ignore it. She was not satisfied with their response. Mm-hmm. She said that she was not explicitly told you cannot talk about these things. But she felt in good conscience she couldn't continue working for Labor Cup under these conditions. Because it also became clear to her after being referred up the chain, the Labor Cup chain, that these people had no intention of getting to the bottom of what allegedly happened in 2019. The response that she got from the the bigwig was, I wasn't there. Right, but Labor Cup was there. You know, it's been alleged that a Labor Cup employee was there, intimately involved with what happened. Why wouldn't the Labor Cup have an interest in clearing this up if it wasn't true? Why would they want, just from a PR perspective, why would they want this hanging out there? Mary has been a professional broadcaster and journalist for many years. Decades. This is not something that she was willing to abide just sit there and and be part of the Labor Cup machine. And she says that as someone who really enjoys Labor Cup and loved the first few editions that she participated in. Obviously, her position, her status gives her the ability to pass up work when, when she wants. But I don't think we should downplay the opportunities that Mary Carrillo has lost in her career because of her principles, right? We know that she hasn't been on ESPN for a long time. We don't know why, but she hasn't been working for ESPN for a while. She made reference to a few incidents behind the scenes that were illuminating as far as how, you know, sports broadcasting works. Tennis Sandgren's tweets and social media posts were an example she gave about how she wants to do journalism on TV. And there is so little journalism being done on sports broadcasts that it's not something that she can stomach. Mm-hmm. We often deride tennis commentators for the things that they don't say, especially with this issue. We're like, why is nobody talking about it? And we kind of lose s- sight of the fact that these are shows that are produced as well. 
it's a, it's a television show. Uh, yeah. And there yeah. are producers behind the scenes, meetings that happen. And so, like, Mary gave an example a couple times. What was agreed to as far as studio segments? A couple times, they didn't happen. It was agreed upon, and then somebody behind the scenes nixed it. And so she was then in the position of having to go it alone on air. It's like, well, mm-hmm. I guess it's up to me now to say something. Yeah. And oftentimes, it seems that when a moment like that happens, where somebody like Mary Carrillo talks about Zverev, and we had that moment where her and Darren Cahill talked about it earlier this summer, that is happening despite objections behind the scenes. Yeah, often it's happening in defiance mm-hmm. of the the barriers that were put up to prevent that from happening. You have to trust that your co-host is willing and even further equipped to have this conversation on air, live in front of millions of people. And she feels that this is something that's important, that it is relevant to the tennis. And there are probably a lot of producers and broadcasters who don't. Or, or don't feel comfortable or feel that they'll speak out of turn or say something unfair to either party. And so we're podcasters who do this out of our house, right? We don't have a lot to lose talking about domestic abuse allegations against players. Mm-hmm. If, but we, if we never get credential at another tournament, it won't be the end of our lives. Right. I mean, we do have that to lose. <laughs> yeah, but it's not... It's not the end of the world right? for us. Right. She gave the example of at the Olympics when it became clear that he was going to be making it deep into the tournament, that he was playing well, get to the gold medal match. And she was like, listen, we, we have to talk about this. And they agreed to a studio segment before the match. That happens. Nothing is said. And she's like, "What? what is going on? What is going on? They're like, oh, no, no, we'll do it after the set change. And then in her words, a toothless segment happens and that's when she was like i guess i'm just gonna have to go it alone here Mm -hmm. yeah so i really appreciated this interview it was so illuminating because you always have people like us who are (laughs) blaming commentators for not bringing these things up but she sort of helped us understand the kind of barriers that happen behind the scenes that prevent that from happening Mm -hmm. so i like that like i will i will take the note on that Gladly. She also gave full credit to Ben Rothenberg for being the only voice for so long with this issue. Mm -hmm. And that she hadn't planned to give a statement on the record about why she was leaving Labor Cup. But she felt that it was essentially giving giving Ben a bone to say like, hey, you're not the only one officially. Right. She said, I quote, now there's two. Two important people. Yeah, and well, <laughs> and then a whole lot of people like us, other podcasters, tennis Twitter folks, literal teenagers on the internet. Right, but are... there's th- this is something else I want to say though. We we've seen so many people do this since the ATP announced that they're going to be doing this investigation. This patting themselves on the back, saying we did we did it, Joe, we did it, <laughs> yeah, and begrudgingly giving credit to br or right like not even, even at all say can't even say his name or tag him like you can hate ben rothenberg to the moon and back for any number of reasons but to be clear the only reason we are here now is because of his reporting and that's whether you like it or not yeah uh, and this is not 
Certainly not to downplay how difficult it is for a survivor to speak. But this type of reporting is extremely sensitive and difficult to do and difficult to get published. So, Which we, we saw. We uh, yeah. lived through that as well. But my point here is that there was nobody else in tennis touching this. Mm-hmm. Nobody in tennis touching this. And that is an indictment, frankly. Yep. The podcast is Behind the Racket podcast, hosted by Mike Cation and a uh, very equivocal Noah Rubin. <laughs> uh, yeah. Definitely check that out because it was illuminating on so many levels. So, Arena Sabalenka, huh? Um, I, listen, I'm not playing this game here. I'm reporting this straight. Arena Sabalenka has COVID-19. She's out of Indian Wells, period. I'm not doing, like, the whole, oh, you should have got vaccinated, whatever. Like, we know. We get it. We got it. She's a vaccine skeptic. Felt the vaccine needed more years of research. Got COVID. Plant corn, get corn. Like, it's it's not something to celebrate. And sometimes the corn isn't even that good. It's a bad harvest. Yeah. The corn that was planted was uneducated. That's the problem. Uh, I just want to do a quick fact check. mRNA vaccines have been researched for over 30 years at this point. I read all the science stuff that I do not understand, but... You know, the DNA sequencing of coronavirus happened decades ago. The idea that RNA transferase could create proteins that, you know, created spike protein, you know, really complicated stuff like that. That should happen in 1989. The, the idea that you could use lipids as a vehicle for vaccines, that happened all through the 90s, like... This stuff has been under research for many, many, many years. Mm-hmm. It just so happens that we were ready for a COVID vaccine because of those decades of research. Right. At one point, the argument that the the trials haven't been su- sufficient, that was fair mm-hmm. to an extent. That's no longer the case. Hasn't been the case for a while. Um, and we also know that the, the research around mRNA vaccines have led to potentially an HIV vaccine. Yeah, just... Incredible stuff, right? It could absolutely revolutionize healthcare with other diseases as well going forward. Mm-hmm. So so anyway, Sabalenka, uh, unfortunately for her, is out of Indian Wells. She's the number two player of the year. She did an Insta Live yesterday where she said she's lost her sense of taste and smell or whatever. She might, 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 might get the vaccine later this year. Great. Awesome. Love that for you. But Which like, leads us to But our... like, it's too fucking late. I, I mean, it's not because you should still get it, but... Uh, I mean, at some point it might be too late for her to play in Australia if she waits too long to take this vaccine. Yeah. Because it looks that that's where, despite... <laughs> I almost said Ted Riley. Despite... Who's Ted Riley? Craig Tiley. Oh. <laughs> despite Craig Tiley's a disposition to let the tennis players do whatever they want. Well, he may be forced into presiding over an Australian Open where a vaccine mandate is in place. And this was another of the maybe. big stories yeah. from the last week where Australian professional athletes are required 
to be vaccinated to perform on home soil. Is am I getting that correct? Yes. So the the state government of Victoria instituted a very stringent vaccine mandate. And that's where the Australian Open is held. Exactly. In the state of Victoria. Yes. State of Victoria. Yep. And so this only includes Australian athletes. However, the age, the newspaper, the age reports that it's probable that a separate vaccine mandate will be revealed over the next few days or weeks that will impact international players coming to the Australian Open. So this isn't set in stone yet, but it is very possible, probable even, that international tennis players and cricket players will need to be fully vaccinated before they enter Australia. This is a country that was doing so well, better than damn near everywhere else in the world for so long, and took precautions, unlike most other places, and their government hasn't been able to secure vaccines at a rate that would complement the precautions that they took. And so they found themselves in a pretty hellish situation now with COVID. So now, you know, it's the the most locked down cities, the most locked down country in the world. The people of Sydney and Melbourne have dealt with just a lot, a lot Mm -hmm. of confinement, more than the rest of us. So they're really not going to play games with the the Australian Open this year. The writing on the wall is is almost clear for that and being the messy people that most of us are we then try and look a little bit further well what does this mean is novak djokovic vaccinated will he be vaccinated if it's required for him to play in australia at what point will sabalenka have to take the vaccine in order to play in australia what rules Mm. are governing how long she has to wait before she can take the vaccine after having and recovering from COVID. The the Australian media has used Novak Djokovic as the poster child here. They're, in my opinion, they're having a little bit of fun with it. They're using photos of him screaming where he looks angry. And you know how especially broadcast media does some of this sensationalist stuff. And... Just as a point of information, I want to be fair here. We don't know for sure if Djokovic is vaccinated. Mm -hmm. We don't know if he is against being vaccinated. I believe he said he would probably get the vaccine if it became mandatory in order to play. So I just want to be totally fair here with the facts. And also it's been estimated that as much as 50% of the ATP is unvaccinated. So he is not alone. And not quite as high, but still an alarmingly high number in the WTA. So yes, <laughs> a, a very large swath of tennis players is still unvaccinated. It's, it just so happens that Djokovic is, what, the nine-time champion in Australia? Somebody who has perennial success there. Somebody who was the most visible and prominent tennis player to step a foot wrong in the pandemic with the Adria Tour. Like, let's not forget, that was a complete calamitous fiasco. So, yeah. the, the and use... And it's not just a bad PR decision. You know what I mean? Like, the the event got dozens of people infected with COVID-19. Himself it, included. Right. It's surprising to me... Well, no, it's not surprising. But it's disturbing to me that that event has been kind of a blip in, in a lot of the reporting about 
oh, this boring reporting about why don't people love Djokovic, whatever. People do, first of all. But if you cannot understand why some people don't, or, or why they have legitimate critiques of how he has uh, sort of moved through the world during the pandemic, I, I don't think you're looking hard enough. The reason that he's dominating coverage, he's one of the most popular athletes in the world. Mm-hmm. He's the number one men's tennis player, possibly the greatest who has ever played the game. Of course he is going to be the headline. Who what, are, are you going to do a headline about the number 95 player in the world being anti-vax? No. So you're saying he's earned this position? In a way, I'm not saying all the coverage is fair, but I am saying the criticism that he received from Adria Tour and the holistic bullshit snake oil salesman, what's his name, on his Insta Live, that is legitimate because the Adria Tour actually endangered people. Mm-hmm. I've also seen folks being so snide about this whole situation, saying that watch. Watch Novak is already vaccinated or will be vaccinated, and then all the journalists just have to eat crow. <laughs> Cannot wait. Cannot wait for that to happen. Like, like what is this? What, what is are this? you saying about yes, yourself? We hope that he is vaccinated because it's good for the world. Yeah. Like, and the fact that we don't know whether he's vaccinated or not as he travels through the tennis calendar, that's not on us. Like the thing is, there is a there's a small percentage of people who view this as wins and losses right i want him to be vaccinated i want tennis players to do the right thing for their fellow human i don't care who i like and who i don't like like the fact that like you are not a simona halep stand but when she came out here and said hey guys got my jab get yours like like yes girl look beyond stand them for a minute I am not celebrating the fact that Sabalenka is out of Indian Wells, okay? That sucks, but it's a decision that she made that has an impact on other people. Like, if you didn't know, COVID is actually contagious. So when you say that it's a personal decision, that is a lie. Because your personal decision has impacts on other people. And I don't know, like, why this is difficult. And what makes it... <sighs> more frustrating for me too is that we all live through this in our personal lives as well in our work lives like we're talking about this uh, talking about tennis like it's something that exists in a bubble by itself and similar things are not happening in our own lives with covid we're all living through covid right we all know that co-worker who refuses to get vaccinated Many of us know that same co-worker who has subsequently gotten COVID. Right. Like, this is a common thing. We've seen it time and time again and almost weekly all over the place, right? Like, like if, uh, I mean, if your boss got it, or if your boss was an anti-vaxxer and you, like, stan your boss, you, like, idolize them, would that be okay? Like, would you be rooting for them not to be vaccinated? Like, I don't, I do not get it. I didn't think we were going to go here, but I just got really mad mm. because I'm tired. Effie, I'm tired. Stay out of this, Laurel. <laughs> anyway, if you're a child under 12, Indian Wells said, no, thank you. <laughs> Not this year, babe. I have to laugh. Like, it actually did give me a bit of a laugh. Indian Wells 
instituted really the strictest vaccine policy we've seen in tennis across the board. Mm-hmm. They said, you, except for the players. Well, because as it turns out, they'd have to be reaching into like the three hundreds to fill that field. <laughs> I mean, we, but, but let's be real here. Yeah, yeah. We joke about how oh, why aren't they, why aren't they forcing players to get vaccinated? Well, at this point, what is your field going to look like? Well. Know that we know what the no, numbers but the, are. The thing is, a lot of the players are not principled anti-vaxxers, right? A lot of them have said, well, if it becomes mandatory to play, I'll get it. Tsitsipas is one of those people. I think the majority of those people would get it if they needed it to play. Mm-hmm. You know, right. Like, it, but, I mean, this is a decision that needed to be taken firmly yeah, like at a certain date to give it. people enough time yeah. with the traveling that they do to get double-vaxxed or get the J&J Indian Wells couldn't have just made this decision three weeks ago. Right. But Indian Wells' vaccine policy for spectators and visitors was known months ago. Mm-hmm. You know, the the legal wranglings that need to happen for it to apply to employees or independent contractors or whatever is much more complicated. So I get it. But they said, you know, if you're coming to watch the event, vaccine or nothing, no exemptions. No medical, no religious, no political, nothing. Zero exemptions. And your kids can't come. That, that's, the, play, the players' kids can come under certain Under pretty restrictions. strict restrictions. And their um, unvaxxed parents can come well, yeah. and play and huff and puff and COVID the house down on court. <laughs> <laughs> but little Jimmy and Johnny... That's our names. Yeah. Who are out here... Trying to root <laughs> against Tennis Sandgren. I know, right? Give them a chance. No, well, because those children can't be vaccinated yet, they're not allowed to come. So I was I was very surprised by this policy. And I am surprised about uh, how little complaining I've seen about it. You'd think, like in major cities, you'd have this whole uh, ragtag troop of yahoos like show up to the event and do some little protest like they do here. I mean, the the state of the weather so far in Indian Wells, they may have just dropped it from heat, heat exhaustion. <laughs> ATP has just been giving us so much transparency in the last few weeks. Yeah. And by that I mean, if you do a little bit digging, and you find out the stuff that they're just trying to do, just, just die on the Friday news cycle. <laughs> It's like, will you SJWs just shut up? Here you go. I was writing the agenda for this episode. And on occasion when we are short on material, I will simply go to Google and type in tennis and click on news. And I'll just look through like 10 pages and see if there's anything that we can talk about. And I happen upon this story that was... You found it in Sportsnet, which is a Canadian site. It was sportsnet.ca, but it was an AP Wire story Mm -hmm. from September 24th. This is now October 6th. I didn't hear about it. When we tweeted about it, folks weren't like, y'all are so late. I saw nothing of it. Heard nothing of it. And lo and behold, that gay survey that we heard about at the US (laughs) Open... the gay, sur- is the the gay survey, survey itself gay? <laughs> we, at Pride Day at the US Open, we had Felix Ogier-Aliassime and a couple other players reference this survey that the ATP has been get, trying to get players to do to try and gauge the climate 
for gays on the ATP. In other words, to try and do better. And by better, I mean something, anything. <laughs> and we said we'd try and do some research, and this was all it took. <laughs> yeah, we didn't actually have to do our own reporting. The Associated Press did it for us. Uh, but it is true. The, the ATP sent a survey to 750 players that included uh, over 30 questions. And Massimo Calvelli, who is the CEO of the ATP, said it was part of a, quote, broader initiative to create an environment for players and staff that is inclusive, that is diverse, and that is very safe and welcoming. Perfect language. Great. Well, well done. The, the ATP partnered with an LGBTQ organization out of the UK called Pride Sports and Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, who helped actually craft the survey with their behavioral psychology department. And so this thing was sent out to 750 players. Unfortunately, only 60 have responded. It is difficult, right? You you can't make this kind of survey mandatory for participation mm. in the ATP. You have a group of independent contractors strewn across the globe. So I hear you, the 57 people who replied to our tweet with the same thing about the response rate. You were really bothered by that. No shade at all, but <laughs> actually full shade. All 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 shade. I was annoyed by that. <laughs> we did not editorialize that tweet. It no, it was just was, like, here's what happened. We said we, we, we learned about this at the U.S. Open. Here's more. So I thought it was a fairly natural response for folks. Do you go through and read through all the replies before you reply to something? I mean, this it's something that stuck out. That's actually what annoyed me. Is that like, okay, everybody has replied with the same exact thing. So just read the replies and move on. But anyway, thank you so much for the engagement. Um <laughs> That sounds really mean. I'm I'm really sorry. That does sound mean. I'm not trying to mm. yeah. punch down or hit out at people who replied because it is it is a real concern. The response rate is poor and it definitely impedes getting a a really accurate reading of the uh the feelings of the ATP membership. I think what you should take away from this little interaction is that contrary to how it may come across on the show, I am the nice one. <laughs> Well, I don't know if I'd go that far. Um, but I, I will say, you're right. The response rate is not great. However, the initiative is a good one. This is a first step. It's not the only step. As Calvelli said, it was part of a broader initiative. And the story from AP uh, quoted a researcher at the university that they partnered with and said that he felt the ATP was taking a big step here because they weren't doing it in a reactive way, right? They weren't doing it because they had to. They, um, Well, this person who was quoted said yeah. that other sports organizations that came to them were doing it because there was uh, a coming out, there was a crisis, there was some sort of PR thing that they needed to respond to. The ATP was kind of trying to take the step first no see i, I re- i'm not listen no i understand what i'm you're not saying, saying that, that i'm just representing what this researcher said i understand i'm not saying it's correct i'm not rebuking you right I'm but rebuking you're, him. you're interrupting what i was saying i understand but i'm rebuking him because all that we've said about this issue on this show and we get asked about it all the time is the fact that 
why should an ATP player feel safe and welcome enough to come out if these are the tea leaves that we've been reading for decades? Yes. Right? I agree. Okay. It's not like the ATP just conjured this up out of nowhere. Right. A lot I, of people have been talking about I it. I just wanted to including make that clear. Us. I the, give them zero brownie points. The person they quoted was um, paraphrasing the ATP and was saying, quote, hey, we want to do more than just put up rainbows. We actually want to figure out what to do that's going to be meaningful and drive change. Now, I just want to be clear. Rainbows would be a start because right. currently there are no rainbows. I'm not um, saying there has to be rainbows. I'm just saying that... Uh, <laughs> It's like skipping by albums by. 19, 21, 23, and going straight to 30. <laughs> Adele, an wow. Adele reference. It's 20, the album is 25, okay. by the way. It was 19 and 21, though, right? Or was it yes. 19, 23, no, 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 you're right. 19, 19, 21, 25, 30. Yeah. And she recorded all of them when she was like four years younger than that. <laughs> <laughs> They're doing some work now. Mm-hmm. I don't want to completely defecate on all of that oh my god the imagery would it have been better if i said the four lighter version of that no okay this is this is something it's a start Mm -hmm. but i like you said i'd like the rainbows too (laughs) right the associated press story listed some of the questions that were included in the survey and i found it very interesting you know these were not devised by the atp right they worked in conjunction with this queer organization, with a university. And some of these questions, they're not going to get straight answers to. Was it anonymous? Yes, they assure respondents that it is anonymous. But if the first question is, are you gay, bisexual, etc., etc., how many people are going to divulge that? If you have been closeted, can you really trust that this survey is completely anonymous? You know, I, I get asking the question, but... So yep. It's a lot. But anyway, you know, there was a lot of snark in that segment, but I think this is generally a step in the right direction in a really big way. I'm not being, I'm not being sarcastic. I'm serious. And I, I'm glad that I now know what Felix was talking about. Yes. And they've actually done due diligence. One final thing before we go. We are, I guess, officially not launching now, but letting you know that we will be launching Another GoFundMe at the end of the year. Or at the end of our season. By the end of our season. Yeah. We did a GoFundMe in uh, the fall and winter of 2019. And we were blown away by the generosity of our listeners. Really, really appreciative. Now that the world is coming back to life and, and tennis is really ramping up around the world again, we decided, okay... Like, we actually have the opportunity to travel again and really make serious investments in this podcast. Uh, so we're proud of the work we've done throughout the pandemic because we haven't take, taken any breaks. Longer we, than uh, three weeks. Right. We <laughs> Especially during that sort of first wave, that first quarantine, we tried our best to constantly create content. To We did Twitches. We did Zooms which are so out of my comfort zone. Like, it took a lot of emotional labor. (laughs) If you wonder why we haven't had any more Twitches and Zooms, it's because this This is an audio platform, you know, but we ventured into video. I did the numbers and it... We actually will have produced more content 
in the main pandemic year than we will have this year. And I don't think yeah. we've been slacking this year. No. So anyway, as you know, we this is an amateur production. We use our own money to buy equipment and to, to figure out how to do this podcasting thing. We've been doing it for a while, for almost seven years now. And uh, it just helps us keep going. I'm not even going to lie to you and say that it's... It also just makes like life easier, your support. <laughs> you know, like life is Quite hard. simply, it is, uh, you know, we do kind of treat it as a second job. So yeah. it, it helps. So anyway, that will be coming. It's always awkward to solicit, to like ask for money, right? The first one I felt so uncomfortable about. But having talked to people behind the scenes, I am encouraged by the the constant refrains of invest in yourself, trust that the product that you've put out there is good and that people want to listen to. And there's nothing wrong with asking. If people don't want to, they don't want to. It's not the end <laughs> right. of the world. The ball's in your court. Yeah. We've decided against uh, like the Patreon model because we, I don't personally don't really like the idea of exclusive content. Like what, what you get is what you get. Like what, what mm. we produce is for everybody. So I don't like leaving things behind a paywall. And that's not a criticism. That's just how how I mm. approach it. I also don't like the idea of promising things that I may not be able to deliver on. Because this, honestly, <laughs> right. this is hard enough to like, do what as if, it is. What if the locked content is just not as great as you expected it right? to be? <laughs> so, so, yeah, we wouldn't be asking if we thought we were giving you a shit product. Put it that right. way. So that's coming up. Not ready to launch yet, but it's just, um, you know. It'll probably be something, I think we launched the last one sometime around Thanksgiving-ish. Yeah, US and then, Thanksgiving. Yeah, and then it ran through to the end of the Australian Open. So it wasn't like a time crunch thing. Whenever you can, if you want to, whatever. More to come. Yeah, some of our thank you postcards were interrupted by COVID. Yeah. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. I remember stealing time at work, writing postcards. Time theft. <laughs> fight the power it's a it's a it's a good gig if you can get it <laughs> time thief anyway thank you for listening i am james i'm at elliot jmr on twitter two l's two t's i'm jonathan at tennis underscore john and we are at the body serve on twitter and instagram please if you feel so motivated leave us a review on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts. At the Apollo. Thank you for that one. That one was a nice boost to our day when we saw that one. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.